Welcome to Frig Friday, featuring Sigrid Unset's Kristen Lovren's Daughter, read by Michelle Hammond, sponsored by Gal's Guide. Kristen Lovren's Daughter by Sigrid Unset Winner of the Nobel Prize in Literature Book One The Wreath Part One Jorengard Chapter Seven One day during the Christmas season, Simon Andresen arrived at Jorengard on horseback, quite unexpected. He apologized for coming in this manner, uninvited and alone, without kinsmen, but Sir Andres was in Sweden on business for the king. He himself had been at home at Diefren for some time, but there he had only the company of his younger sisters and his mother, who was ill in bed, and the days had grown so dreary for him, he suddenly felt such an urge to come and see them. Ronfred and Lovrens thanked him warmly for making the long journey at the height of winter. The more they saw of Simon, the more they liked him. He was well acquainted with everything that had been agreed upon between Andres and Lovrens, and it was now decided that the betrothal ale for the young couple would be celebrated before the beginning of Lent if Sir Andres returned home before then, otherwise at Easter. Kristen was quiet and shy when she was with her betrothed. She found little to talk about with him. One evening when everyone had been sitting and drinking, Simon asked her to go outside with him to get some fresh air. As they stood on the gallery in front of the loft room, he put his arm around her waist and kissed her. After that, he did it often whenever they were alone. She wasn't pleased by this, but she allowed him to do it because she knew there was no escape from the betrothal. Now she thought of her marriage as something she had to do, but not something that she looked forward to. And yet she liked Simon well enough, especially when he was talking to the others and did not touch her or speak to her. She had been so unhappy the entire autumn. It did no good to tell herself that Bentine had done her no harm. She felt herself defiled just the same. Nothing could be as it had been before, now that a man had dared to do such a thing to her. She lay awake at night, burning with shame, and she couldn't stop thinking about it. She remembered Bentine's body against hers when she fought with him, and his hot ale breath. She was forced to think about what might have happened, and she was reminded, as a shudder rippled through her flesh, of what he had said that if it could not be concealed, then Arna would be blamed. Images raced through her head of everything that would have followed if she had ended up in such misfortune, and then people had found out about her meeting with Arna. And what if her mother and father had believed such a thing of Arna? And Arna himself! She saw him as he had looked on that last evening, and she felt as if she were sinking down before him in shame simply because she might have dragged him down along with her into sorrow and disgrace. And her dreams were so vile. She had heard about the desires and temptations of the flesh in church and in the holy scriptures, but it had meant nothing to her. Now it had become clear that she herself, and everyone else, had a sinful fleshy body, encompassing the soul, biting into it with harsh bands. Then she imagined how she might have killed Bentine or blinded him, that was the only consolation she could find, 
to indulge in dreams of revenge against that hideous dark figure who was always haunting her thoughts. But it never helped for long. She would lie next to Ulfield at night and weep about everything that had been visited upon her by violence. In her mind, Bentine had managed to breach her maidenhood all the same. On the first workday after the Christmas season, all the women of Urengard were busy in the cookhouse. Ronfred and Kristen had also spent most of the day there. Late in the evening, while some of the women were cleaning up after the baking and others were preparing the evening meal, the milkmaid came rushing in, screaming as she threw up her hands. Jesus! Jesus! Has anyone ever heard more dreadful news? They're carrying Arna Geirdsen home in a sleigh. God help Geird and Inga in their misery. In came a man who lived in a house a short way down the road, and with him was Halfton. They were the ones who had met the funeral procession. The women crowded around them. On the very outskirts of the circle stood Kristen, pale and trembling. Halfton, Lavren's own servant who knew Arna since he was a boy, sobbed loudly as he spoke. It was Ben Tyne Prestison who had killed Arna. On New Year's Eve, the bishop's men were sitting in the men's house drinking when Ben Tyne came in. He had become a scribe for a priest, a Corpus Christi prebendary. At first, the men didn't want to let Bentine in, but he reminded Arna that they were from the same village, so Arna allowed him to sit with him, and they both began to drink. But then they came to blows, and Arna fought so fiercely that Bentine seized a knife from the table and stabbed Arna in the throat and then several times in the chest. Arna died almost at once. The bishop took this misfortune greatly to heart. He personally saw to it that the body was properly tended to, and he had his own men accompany it on the long journey home. He had Bentine thrown in irons and excommunicated from the church, and if he had not already been hanged, then he soon would be. Halvden had to tell the story several times as more people crowded into the room. Lovrens and Simon also came over to the cookhouse when they noticed all the noise and commotion in the courtyard. Lovrens was much distressed. He ordered his horse to be saddled, for he wanted to ride over to Brecken at once. As he was about to leave, his eyes fell on Kristen's white face. Perhaps you would like to go with me? he asked. Kristen hesitated for a moment, shuddering, but then she nodded, for she didn't dare utter a word. Isn't it too cold for her? said Ronfred. Tomorrow they will hold the wake, and then we'll all go. Lovrens looked at his wife. He also glanced at Simon's face and then he went over and put his arm around Kristen's shoulder. "'You must remember that she's his foster-sister,' he said. "'Perhaps she would like to help Inga attend to the body.' And even though Kristen's heart was gripped with fear and despair, she felt a warm surge of gratitude toward her father for his words. Then Ronfred wanted them to eat the evening porridge before they left, if Kristen would be going along. She also wanted to send gifts to Inga—a new linen sheet, candles— and freshly baked bread. She asked them to tell Inga that she would come to help them prepare for the burial. Little was eaten, but much was said in the room while the food stood on the table. One person reminded the other about the trials that God had visited upon Geard and Inga. Their farm had been destroyed by a rock slide and flood, and many of their older children had died, so all of Arna's siblings were still quite young. But fortune had been with them for several years now, ever since the bishop had appointed Geard of Fiensbrecken as his envoy, and the children they had been blessed to keep were good-looking and full of promise. But Inga had loved Arna more dearly than all the rest. People felt sorry for Sira Eirik, too. 
The priest was loved and respected, and the people in the village were proud of him. He was well-educated and capable, and in all his years with the church he had not missed a single holy day or mass or service that he was obliged to observe. In his youth he had been a soldier under Count Alv of Tornberg, but he had brought trouble on himself by killing a man of exceedingly high birth, and so he had turned to the Bishop of Oslo. When the bishop realized how quick Eirik was to acquire book learning, he had accepted him into the priesthood, and if not for the fact that he still had enemies because of that killing in the past, Sira Eirik would probably never have stayed at that little church. It's true that he was quite avaricious, both for his own purse and for his church, but the church was, after all, quite attractively furnished with vessels and draperies and books. And he did have those children, but he never had anything but trouble and sorrow from his family. In the countryside, people thought it unreasonable to expect priests to live like monks, since they had to have women servants on their farms, and might well be in need of a woman to look after things for them when they had to make such long and arduous journeys through the parish in all kinds of weather. People also remembered that it was not so long ago that priests in Norway had been married men, so no one blamed Sarah Eirik for having three children by the housekeeper who was with him when he was young. On this evening, however, they said that it looked as if God wanted to punish Eirik for taking a mistress, since his children and grandchildren had caused him so much grief. And some people said that there was good reason for priests not to have wives or children, for enmity and indignation were bound to arise between the priest and the people of Finsbrecken. Until now, they had been the best of friends. Seaman Andresen was quite familiar with Bentine's conduct in Oslo, and he told the others about it. Bentine had become a scribe for the provost of the Maria Church and was considered a clever fellow. And there were plenty of women who were quite fond of him. He had those eyes and a quick tongue. Some thought him a handsome man, mostly women who felt they had been cheated by their husbands, or young maidens who enjoyed having men act freely toward them. Simon laughed. They knew what he meant, didn't they? Well, Bentine was so shrewd that he didn't get too close to those kinds of women. With them, he exchanged only words and he won a reputation for leading a pure life. It so happened that King Hawken, who was a pious and decent man himself, wanted his men to maintain disciplined and proper behavior, at least the younger men, the others he had little control over. But the king's priest always heard about whatever pranks the young men managed to sneak out and take part in. Drunken feasts, gambling, ale drinking, and the like. And then the rascals had to confess and repent, and they received harsh punishment. Yes, two or three of the wildest boys were even sent away. But at last it came to light that it was that fox, Bentine Secretarius, who had been secretly frequenting all of the alehouses and establishments that were even worse. He had actually listened to the confessions of whores and had given them absolution. Kristen was sitting next to her mother. She tried to eat so that no one would notice how things stood with her but her hand shook so badly that she spilled some of the porridge with every spoonful, and her tongue felt so thick and dry in her mouth that she could hardly swallow the bread. But when Simon began to talk about Bentine, she had to give up all pretense of eating. She gripped the edge of the bench with her hands. Terror and loathing took such a hold on her that she felt dizzy and filled with nausea. He was the one who had tried to. Bentine and Arna. Bentine and Arna. Sick with impatience, she waited for the others to finish. She longed to see Arna, Arna's handsome face, to fall to her knees and grieve, forgetting everything else. 
When Ronfred helped Kristen into her outer garments, she kissed her daughter on the cheek. Kristen was unaccustomed to receiving any kind of caress from her mother, and it felt so good. She rested her head on Ronfred's shoulder for a moment, but she could not cry. When she came out to the courtyard, she saw that there were more people coming with them. Halvden, Jan of Laugerbrew, and Simon and his servant. She felt unreasonably anguished that the two strangers would be going along. It was a biting cold night. The snow creaked underfoot, and the stars glittered as dense as frost in the black sky. After they had gone a short distance, they heard howls and shouts and furious hoofbeats south of the meadows. A little farther along the road, the whole pack of riders came storming up behind them and then raced on past. The sound of ringing metal and vapor from the steaming, frost-covered bodies of the horses rose up before Lovrens and his party as they moved out of the way into the snow. Halvden shouted at the wild throng. It was the youths from the farms south of the village. They were still celebrating Christmas and were out trying their horses. Those who were too drunk to take notice raced on ahead, thundering and bellowing as they hammered on their shields. But a few of them understood the news that Halvden had yelled after them. They dropped away from the group, fell silent, and joined Lavrin's party as they whispered to the men in the back of the procession. They continued on until they could see Finsbrecken on the slope alongside the Seal River. There was a light between the buildings. In the middle of the courtyard the servants had set pine torches in a mound of snow, and the firelight gleamed red across the white hillock, but the dark houses looked as if they were streaked with clotted blood. One of Arna's little sisters was standing outside, stamping her feet, with her arms crossed under her cloak. Kristen kissed the tear-stained face of the freezing child. Her heart was as heavy as stone, and she felt as if there was lead in her limbs as she climbed the stairs to the loft where they had laid him out. The sound of hymns and the radiance of many lighted candles filled the doorway. In the center of the loft stood the coffin Arna had been brought home in, covered with a sheet. Boards had been placed over trestles, and the coffin had been lifted on top. At its head stood a young priest with a book in his hands, singing. All around him people were kneeling with their faces hidden in their thick capes. Lovrens lit his candle from one of the candles in the room, set it firmly on the board of the bier, and knelt down. Kristen was about to do the same, but she couldn't get her candle to stand. Then Simon stepped over to help her. As long as the priest prayed, everyone remained on their knees, repeating his words in a whisper so that the steam hovered around their mouths. It was ice cold in the loft. When the priest closed his book, the people rose. Many had already gathered in the death chamber. Lovrens went over to Inga. She was staring at Kristen and seemed not to hear Lovrens' words. She stood there with the gifts he had given her, holding them as if unaware that she had anything in her hands. So you have come too, Kristen, she said in an odd, strained tone of voice. Perhaps you would like to see my son, the way he has come back to me? She moved a few candles aside, grabbed Kristen's arm with a trembling hand, and with the other she tore the cloth from the dead man's face. It was grayish-yellow like mud, and his lips were the color of lead. They were slightly parted so that the even, narrow, bone-white teeth seemed to offer a mocking smile. Beneath the long eyelashes could be seen a glimpse of his glazed eyes, and there were several bluish-black spots high on his cheeks that were either bruises from the fight or the marks of a corpse. 
Perhaps you would like to kiss him? asked Inga in the same tone of voice, and Kristen obediently leaned forward and pressed her lips to the dead man's cheek. It was clammy, as if from dew, and she thought she could faintly smell the stench of the corpse. He had no doubt begun to thaw out in the heat from all the candles. Kristen remained leaning there, with her hands on the bier, for she did not have the strength to stand up. Inga pulled aside more of the shroud so the gash from the knife wound across his collarbone was visible. Then she turned to the people and said in a quavering voice, I see that it's a lie what people say, that a dead man's wounds will bleed if he's touched by the one who caused his death. He's colder now, my boy, and not as handsome as when you last met him down on the road. You don't care to kiss him now, I see, but I've heard that you didn't refuse his lips back then. Inga, said Lavrin, stepping forward. Have you lost your senses? What are you saying? Oh, you're all so grand over there at Jorengard. You are much too rich a man, Lavrens Bjorkovsen, for my son to dare court your daughter with honor. And no doubt Kristen thought she was too good for him too, but she wasn't too good to run after him on the road at night and dally with him in the thickets on the evening he left. Ask her yourself, and we'll see if she dares to deny it, as Arna lies here dead, she who has brought this upon us with her loose ways. Lavrens did not ask the question. Instead, he turned to Geard. You must rein in your wife. She has taken leave of her senses. But Kristen raised her pale face and looked around in despair. I did go out to meet Arna on that last evening, because he asked me to do so. But nothing happened between us that was not proper. As she seemed to pull herself together and fully realize what was implied, she shouted loudly, I don't know what you mean, Inga. Are you defaming Arna as he lies here? Never did he try to entice or seduce me. But Inga laughed loudly. Arna? No, not Arna. But Bentine didn't let you play with him that way. Ask Gunhild, Lavrens, who washed the filth off your daughter's back. And ask any man who was in the men's quarters at the Bishop's Citadel on New Year's Eve when Bentine ridiculed Arna for having let her go and then was made her fool. She let Bentine come under her fur as she walked home, and she tried to play the same game with him. Lavrens gripped Inga by the shoulder and pressed his hand against her mouth. Get her out of here, Geard. It's shameful that you should talk this way before the body of this good boy. But even if all of your children lay here dead, I would not stand and listen to your lies about mine. And you, Geard, will have to answer for what this demented woman is saying. Geard took hold of his wife to lead her away, but he said to Lavrens, it's true that Arna and Bentine were talking about Kristen when my son lost his life. It's understandable that you may not have heard it, but there has been talk here in the village this fall. Simon slammed his sword into the nearest clothes chest. No, good folks, now you will have to find something other than my betrothed to talk about in this death chamber. Priest, can't you harness these people so that everything proceeds according to custom? The priest, Kristen now saw that he was the youngest son from Ulsvold who had been home for Christmas, opened his book and took up his position next to the beer. But Lovren shouted that those who had spoken of his daughter, whoever they might be, would have to eat their words. Then Inga screamed, Go ahead and take my life, Lovrens, just as she has taken all my solace and joy, and celebrate her marriage to the son of a knight, and yet everyone will know that she was married to Bentine on the road. Here and she threw the sheet that Lovrens had given her across the bier to Kristen. I don't need Bronfred's linen to wrap around Arna for burial. Make yourself a kerchief out of it, or keep it to swaddle your wayside bastard. 
and go over to help Gunhild mourn for the hanged man. Lavren, Skeerd, and the priest all seized hold of Inca. Simon tried to lift up Kristen, who was lying across the beard, but she vehemently shook off his hand, and then, still on her knees, she straightened up and shouted loudly, May God my Savior help me, that is a lie! She put out her hand and held it over the nearest candle on the beer. It looked as if the flame wavered and moved aside. Kristen felt everyone's eyes upon her, for a very long time, it seemed. Then she suddenly noticed a searing pain in her palm, and with a piercing shriek she collapsed onto the floor. She thought she had fainted, but she could feel Simon and the priest lifting her up. Inga screamed something. She saw her father's horrified face and heard the priest shout that no one should consider it a true trial. This was not the way to ask God to bear witness. And then Simon carried Kristen out of the loft and down the stairs. Simon's servant ran to the stable, and a moment later Kristen, still only half-conscious, was sitting on the front of Simon's saddle, wrapped in his cape, as he rode down toward the village as fast as his horse could carry them. They had almost reached Jorengard when Lavrens overtook them. The rest of their entourage came thundering along the road far behind. Say nothing to your mother, said Simon as he set Kristen down next to the door. We've heard far too much senseless talk tonight. It's no wonder that you fainted in the end. Ronfred was lying awake when they came in, and she asked how things had gone at the vigil. Simon spoke for all of them. Yes, there were many candles and many people. Yes, a priest was there. Tormod of Oswald. Of Sarah Eirik he heard that he had ridden south to Hamar that very evening, so they would avoid any difficulty at the burial. We must have a mass said for that boy, said Ronfred. May God give Inga strength. She has been sorely tried, that good, capable woman. Lavrens fell in with the tone that Simon had set, and in a little while Simon said that now they must all go to bed, for Kristen is both tired and sad. Some time later, when Ronfred had fallen asleep, Lovrens threw on some clothes and went over to sit on the edge of the bed where his daughters were sleeping. In the dark, he found Kristen's hand, and then he said gently, Now you must tell me, child, what is true and what is a lie in all this talk that Inga is spouting. Sobbing, Kristen told him of everything that had happened on the evening that Arna left for Hamar. Lovrens said little, then Kristen crawled forward on the bed and threw her arms around his neck, whimpering softly. I am to blame for Arna's death. It's true what Inga said. Arna himself asked you to come and meet him, said Lavrens, pulling the covers up around his daughter's bare shoulders. It was thoughtless of me to allow the two of you to spend so much time together, but I thought the boy had better sense. I won't blame the two of you. I can see that these things are heavy for you to bear. And yet I never imagined that any of my daughters would fall into ill repute here in our village. It will be painful for your mother when she hears this news. But you went to Gunhild instead of coming to me. That was so unwise that I can't understand how you could act so foolishly. I don't want to stay here in the village any longer, wept Kristen. I don't dare look a single person in the eye. And all the sorrow I have caused those at Romandgard and at Fiensbrecken? Yes, said Lavrens. They will have to make sure, both Geard and Sarah Eirik, that these lies about you are put in the ground along with Arna. Otherwise, it is Simon Andresen who can best defend you in this matter, and he patted her in the dark. Don't you think he handled things well, and with good sense? Father, Kristen begged, fearful and fervent, as she clung to him. 
Send me to the cloister, father. Yes, listen to me. I've thought about this for a long time. Maybe Ulfhild will get well if I go in her place. Do you remember the shoes that I sewed for her this autumn? The ones with pearls on them? I pricked my fingers so badly, I bled from the sharp gold thread. I sat and sewed those shoes because I thought it was wrong that I didn't love my sister enough to become a nun and help her. Arna asked me about that once. If I had said yes back then, none of this would have happened. Lavren shook his head. Lie down now, he told her. You don't know what you're saying, my poor child. Now you must try to sleep. But Kristen lay there, feeling the pain in her burned hand. Bitterness and despair over her fate raged in her heart. Things could not have gone worse for her if she had been the most sinful of women. Everyone would believe. No, she couldn't. She couldn't stand to stay here in the village. Horror after horror appeared before her. When her mother found out about this, and now there was blood between them and their parish priest, hostility among all those around her who had been friends her whole life. But the most extreme and oppressive fear seized her whenever she thought of Simon, the way he had picked her up and carried her off and spoken for her at home and acted as if she were his property. Her father and mother had yielded to him as if she already belonged more to him than to them. Then she remembered Arna's face, cold and hideous. She remembered that she had seen an open grave waiting for a body the last time she came out of church. The chopped-up lumps of earth lay on the snow, hard and cold and gray as iron. That was where she had brought Arna. Suddenly she thought about a summer night many years before. She was standing on the loft gallery at Finsbrecken, the same loft where she had been struck down this evening. Arna was playing ball with some boys down in the courtyard, and the ball came sailing up to her on the gallery. She held it behind her back and refused to give it up when Arna came to retrieve it. Then he tried to take it from her by force, and they had fought over it on the gallery, then inside the loft among the chests. The leather sacks full of clothes that were hanging there knocked them on the head when they ran into them during the chase. They had fought and tumbled over that ball. And now she finally seemed to realize that he was dead and gone, that she would never see his brave, handsome face or feel his warm hands again. She had been so childish and heartless that it had never occurred to her how he would feel about losing her. She wept in despair and thought she deserved her own unhappiness. But then she started thinking again about everything that still awaited her, and she wept because she thought the punishment that would befall her was too severe. Simon was the one who told Ronfred about what had happened at the vigil at Brecken the night before. He made no more of the matter than was necessary, but Kristen was so dazed from grief and a sleepless night that she felt a purely unreasonable bitterness toward him, because he could speak of it as if it were not so terrible after all. She also felt a great displeasure at the way her parents let Simon act as if he were the master of the house. So you don't think anything of it, Simon? asked Ronfred anxiously. No, replied Simon, and I don't think anyone else will either. They know you and her and they know this Bentine, but there's not much to talk about in this remote village. It's perfectly reasonable for people to help themselves to this juicy tidbit. Now we'll have to teach them that Kristen's reputation is too rich a diet for the peasants around here. But it's too bad that she was so frightened by his coarseness that she didn't come to you at once or go to Sarah Eirik himself. 
I think that whorehouse priest would have gladly testified that he had meant no more than some innocent teasing if you had spoken to him, Lavrens. Both parents agreed that Simon was right, but Kristen gave a shriek and stamped her foot. But he knocked me to the ground! I hardly know what he did to me! I was out of my senses! I no longer remember a thing! For all I know, it might be as Inga says. I haven't been well or happy for a single day since. Ronfred gave a cry and pressed her hands together. Lovren leaped to his feet. Even Simon's face changed expression. He gave Kristen a sharp look, went over to her, and put his hand under her chin. Then he laughed. God bless you, Kristen. You would have remembered it if he had done you any harm. It's no wonder she's been feeling melancholy and unwell since that unlucky evening when she was given such a fright. She who has never met with anything but kindness and goodwill before, he said to the others. Anyone can see from her eyes, which bear no ill intent and would rather believe in good than evil, that she is a maiden and not a woman. Kristen looked up into the small, steady eyes of her betrothed. She raised her arms halfway up. She wanted to place them around his neck. Then Simon went on. You mustn't think, Kristen, that you won't forget all about this. I don't intend for us to settle at Formo right away and never allow you to leave this valley. No one has the same color of hair or temperament in the rain as in the sun, said old King Svera, when they accused his birch-leg followers of growing arrogant with success. Lovrens and Ronfred smiled. It amused them to hear the young man speak as if he were a wise old bishop. Simon continued, It would not be proper for me to admonish you, the man who is to be my father-in-law, but perhaps I might say this much. We were dealt with more strictly, my siblings and I. We were not allowed to move so freely among the servants, as I see it as Kristen's custom. My mother used to say that if you play with the cottagers' children, in the long run you'll end up with lice in your hair, and there is some truth to that. Lovrens and Ronfred said nothing to this, but Kristen turned away, and the desire she had felt for a moment to put her arms around Simon Dara's neck had vanished completely. Around midday, Lovrens and Simon put on their skis and went off to tend to several traps up on the ridge. Outdoors it was now beautiful weather, sunny and not nearly as bitter cold. Both men were relieved to slip away from all the sorrow and tears at home, so they skied a great distance, all the way up to the bare rock. They lay in the sun under a steep cliff and drank and ate. Then Lovrens talked a little about Arna. He had been very fond of the boy. Simon joined in, praising the dead man, and said that he didn't find it strange that Kristen should grieve for her foster brother. Then Lovrens mentioned that perhaps they should not pressure her so much, but give her a little more time to regain her composure before they celebrated the betrothal ale. She had said that she would like to go to a cloister for a while. Simon sat up suddenly and gave a long whistle. You don't care for the idea? asked Lovrens. Oh, yes, yes, replied the other man hastily. This seems to be the best counsel, dear father-in-law. Send her to the sisters in Oslo for a year. Then she'll learn how people talk about each other in the world. I happen to know a little about several of the maidens who are there, he said and laughed. They wouldn't lie down and die of grief over two mad boys tearing each other apart for their sake. Not that I would want such a maiden for my wife. But I don't think it would do Kristen any harm to meet some new people. Lovrens put the rest of the food in the knapsack and said without looking at the young man, You are fond of Kristen, I think. 
Simon laughed a little, but did not look at Lovrens. You must know that I have great affection for her. And for you as well, Simon said brusquely. And then he stood up and put on his skis. I have never met any maiden I would rather marry. Right before Easter, while it was still possible to drive a sleigh down the valley and across Lake Miosa, Kristen made her second journey to the south. Simon came to escort her to the cloister. So this time she traveled with her father and her betrothed, sitting in the sleigh, wrapped in furs. And accompanying them were servants and sleighs full of her chests of clothing, and gifts of food and furs for the abbess and the sisters of Nonacetter. 